Hello? Hey, it's a four-way. Is everybody on? Yeah, I'm here. What's up? Present. Oh my god, you're never gonna believe what I just heard. Bitch, we need to be in person for this one. I'm on my way. I'll grab the champagne. Perfect. See you guys in 10. Welcome back, toppers. I'm depressed. I am so sad that Halloween is over. I don't know what to do with myself. (laughs) It's like I'm walking around with a rain cloud just pouring down on me. I get that it's Christmas time now, but it's not as fun as Halloween. Anyway, I'm fully aware it is November 1st, but I have to, I have to end, end the spooky season off with a bang. You know what I mean? Like I already said, it's always spooky season in my heart year round, but we have to do another true crime episode. I just have to. I have to. You know me. I have to do it. So today, and then after this, we'll be taking a slight little break from the, even if it's just a week, we'll be taking a break from the true crime just because my mental health, like doing this every single week, doing all this research on these serial killers, bro, I don't have nightmares normally. I have the worst nightmares recently it involved (laughs) i don't even want to say this it involved a fork and it it literally had nothing to do with food or eating it was disgusting i don't even want to talk about it it was sick sick i should see a therapist for that nightmare but anyway i'm gonna take a break next week from the true crime just letting you know ahead of time but we're gonna end end off the spooky season with a bang this one again, is a serial killer who inspired a film you might have seen. You might not have. It wasn't as popular as some of the other horror movies out there. I thought it was really, really good. I watched, I don't, what did I watch it? I don't even remember where I watched it. I probably just bought it, but if you can find it, I would watch it. It was interesting movie, right? So today, it is also not only a case that inspired a film, it's a case that has not been solved, which those are the scariest because that person, I know this happened years ago, but they could still be alive. Like, he could be listening to this right now. Hello? Don't come after me, Phantom. Yes, that's his name, the Phantom Killer. So today, I'll be covering a case, like I said, yet to be solved. The film called... The Town That Dreaded Sundown is based on the true crimes referred to as the Texarkana Moonlight Murders that were committed by a suspect only known as the Phantom. The true identity of this man is still a mystery. So, like we normally do, I'm going to go over a little bit about the film and then we'll jump on into the cases themselves. So a little about the film before we get into the story of the Phantom. You would think since they never caught this guy that there wouldn't be that much information to cover, but here we are. (laughs) There's a lot of information. So The Town That Dreaded Sundown is a 1976 American thriller film directed and produced by Charles B. Pierce and written by Earl E. Smith. The film was mostly shot around Texarkana, and a number of locals were cast as extras. The film states that, quote, the incredible story you are about to see is true, where it happened and how it happened, only the names have been changed, end quote. The actual phantom attacked eight people in or near the town of Texarkana, Texas, which is on the Texas border with Arkansas, hence the name. Uh-huh, so clever. Most of the murders occurred in rural areas just outside Texarkana in Bowie County, Texas, while the film has them occurring in Arkansas. However, the general outline of the murders largely follows reality with mostly minor artistic license taken. As in the film, the real killer was never identified nor apprehended. 
the film is loose enough with the facts that one family member of a victim filed a lawsuit in 1978 over its depiction of his sister. The fabricated facts in the film have also caused rumors and folklore to spread for generations around Texarkana. The film's tagline claims that the man who killed five people, quote, still lurks in the streets of Texarkana, Arkansas, end quote, causing officials of the neighborhooding city to threaten Pierce over the ads in 1977. However, it remained on the posters. A sequel with the same name was released on October 16, 2014. And that's all the information I have on the film that I wanted to cover. Like I said, it's a really good movie. I would watch it if you have time. Now, on to the story of the Phantom Killer. I'm going to be covering each of the crimes, um, all the victims, how the town reacted, a profile of the killer, suspects, theories. So, honestly, grab a drink, a snack, grab both, make it alcoholic if you're old enough. If you're not old enough, I won't tell. But, you know, you know, do things responsibly. Okay, so it's not like I can give a background on the killer, like where he was born, his zodiac sign, all that jazz, because we don't know who he is. So we're just gonna jump right into the murders. So we can't gradually, gracefully work our way to them. So here we are. The Texarkana, I really hope I'm saying Texarkana correctly. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna keep saying it like that. So I'm saying it wrong, I'm sorry. The Texarkana Moonlight Murders, a term coined by the media, was a series of unsolved murders and other violent crimes committed in and around Texarkana in the spring of 1946 by an unidentified serial killer known as the Phantom Killer or Phantom Slayer. The killer is credited with attacking eight people within 10 weeks, five of whom were killed. The attacks happened on weekends between February 22, 1946 and May 3, 1946. The first attack occurred at around 11.45 p.m. on Friday, February 22, 1946. Jimmy Hollis, age 25, and his girlfriend Mary Jean Luray, age 19, parked on a secluded road, now known as Lover's Lane, after seeing a movie together. The area was approximately 50 feet off Robinson Road on an unpaved street about 100 yards from the last row of city homes. Around 10 minutes later, at 11.55 p.m., a man wearing a white cloth mask, which resembled a pillowcase with eye holes cut out, appeared at Hollis's driver's side door and shone a flashlight in the window. Unsure if it was a prank, Hollis told him he had the wrong person, to which the man responded, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. Both Hollis and Lorette were ordered out of the driver's side door, and the man ordered Hollis to, quote, take off his goddamn britches, end quote. You know that this happened years ago if they refer to underwear as britches. Okay, anyway. After he complied, the man struck him in the head twice with a pistol. Lorette later told investigators that the noise was so loud she had initially thought Hollis had been shot when in actuality his skull had been fractured. Thinking the assailant wanted to rob them, Lorette showed him Hollis's wallet to prove he had no money, after which she was struck with a blunt object. The assailant ordered her to stand and when she did, told her to run. Initially, she tried to flee towards a ditch, but the assailant ordered her to run a different direction up the road. Imagine, can you picture that? You literally, first of all, you witness that, traumatic, and then you get hit, hard as shit, traumatic, and then they tell you to run, and then uh, uh, you're going the wrong way. A bit, I'm gonna run wherever I want to fucking run. Oh my god. Oh, no, the other way. Bitch, uh, no. Lorraine spotted an old car parked off the road, but found it empty, and was again confronted by the attacker, who asked her why she was running. <laughs> oh my God. 
what the fuck do you mean? You just told me to run. When she responded that he had told her to do so, he called her a liar before knocking her down and sexually assaulting her with the barrel of his gun. I apologize if you just heard my dog scratch in the background. After the assault, Larray fled on foot, running a half mile to a nearby house. She attempted to call for a car passing by the residence, but it was ignored. Larray was able to awaken the residents of the home and phone the police. Meanwhile, Hollis had regained consciousness and managed to flag down a passerby on Richmond Road. The motorist left Hollis at the scene and drove to a nearby funeral home where he was able to call the police. Within 30 minutes, Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the assailant had already left. They found Hollis's pants 100 yards away from the parked car. Luray was hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound. Hollis was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures, but both survived the attack. Hollis and Luray gave conflicting reports to law enforcement as to what their attacker looked like. Luray claimed the man was wearing a white bag over his head with cutouts for the eyes and mouth and that she could see under the mask that he was apparently African-American. Hollis alternately claimed the man was white and around 30 years old, but conceded that he could not distinguish his features as he had been blinded with the flashlight. Both agreed that the assailant was around six foot tall. Law enforcement repeatedly challenged Larray's account and believed that she and Hollis knew the identity of the attacker and were covering for him. Why would you cover for them? If, like, that makes no, like, that makes no sense as a police officer, why would you, why would people get the shit beat out of them and then cover for that person? What? God. Anyway, a little background on those two, on Jimmy and Mary. Jimmy Hollis was a 25-year-old insurance agent at the time of the attack. He was born on September 25th, 1920 and lived at 3502 North State Line Avenue, a house which no longer exists. On the night of his attack, he was at the movies on a double date with his brother Bob, who was also an insurance agent. After the movie, he dropped his brother and his brother's date off. While he was taking his girlfriend home, they stopped on the street off Richmond Road where the attack occurred. Hollis suffered three skull fractures and was hospitalized for several days at Texarkana Hospital, also known as Pine Street Hospital, which also no longer exists. He was in critical condition. After four days, he showed slight improvement but was still not fully conscious. He was released from the hospital on Saturday, March 9th. His doctor told him it would be some time before he was completely well again and that he was not to work for six months. By the middle of May, he was still recovering from his injuries. Three months after the attack, he stated, I still get nervous when I think about it. At night, on the street, even downtown. Hollis was questioned several times by officers after the other killings. Starting at the end of April, he spent a week with Loray in Frederick, Oklahoma before residing in Shreverport, Louisiana. Hollis eventually married and had several children. He obtained a Bachelor of Arts in History and a Master's of Science in Public Administration, eventually working for the U.S. government and appeared in the 1971 television film, They've Killed President Lincoln, as Vice President Andrew Johnson. He eventually moved to Houston, where he began working for NASA. Hollis died in his sleep at the age of 54. His family remembered him for his jokes and sense of humor, as well as for his love of the outdoors, including camping and hunting. Mary Larray was 19 and lived at East Hooks Courts in Hooks, Texas, when she was attacked. She was beaten and sexually assaulted with the perpetrator's pistol, suffering a head wound. Afterward, she had frequent nightmares about her attacker. She later moved to Frederick, Oklahoma to live with her aunt and uncle, Mr. and Mrs. Paul Long. Her aunt said that for the first time in Mary's life, Mary was extremely nervous and would not go upstairs by herself or sleep alone. Three months later, Texarkana Gazette reporter 
Lucille Holland, was flown to Frederick by a man named Paul Burns to interview Mary. At the time of the interview, officers had not publicly linked Lorraine's attack to the more recent murders. The report appeared in the May 10th edition of the Texarkana Gazette. Lorraine said, I would know his voice anywhere. It's always in my ears. Why didn't he kill me too? He killed so many others. She described her attacker as a light-skinned black man, which was different from Hollis's belief that the attacker was a dark, tanned white man. After the first double murder, Lorray went to Texarkana to talk with police with the hope that they would connect the incidents and identify the murderer, but the rangers questioned her story and insisted she knew who her attacker was. After the second double murder, a Texas ranger went to Frederick to question Mary again. Lorray, native to Oklahoma, died in Billings, Montana of cancer in 1965 at the age of only 38. Whoa, so that's the first attack. Now we're going to talk about the second attack. The second attack was when Richard L. Griffin, age 29, and his girlfriend of six weeks, Polly Ann Moore, age 17, were found in Griffin's 1941 Oldsmobile sedan on Sunday, March 24, 1946, between 8.30 and 9 a.m. by a passing motorist. The motorist saw the parked car on a lover's lane named Rich Road, now South Robinson, near a railroad spur 100 yards south of U.S. Highway 67 West, close to a night spot called Club Dallas. The motorist at first thought that both were asleep. Griffin was found between the front seats on his knees with his head resting on his crossed hands and his pockets turned inside out. Moore was found sprawled face down in the back seat. There is evidence, however, to suggest that she was killed on a blanket outside the car and then placed there. Griffin had been shot twice while still in the car. Both had been shot once in the back of the head and both were fully clothed. A blood-soaked patch of earth near the car suggests the police that they had been killed outside the car and placed back inside. Concealed blood was found covering the running board and it had flowed through the bottom of the car door. A 32 cartridge shell was also found, possibly shot from a Colt pistol wrapped in a blanket. No extent reports indicate that either Griffith or Moore were examined by a pathologist. Local rumor had it that a sexual assault had also occurred, but modern reports refute this claim. In response to the murders, police launched a citywide investigation along with the Texas and Arkansas City Police, the Department of Public Safety, Miller and Cass County Sheriff's Departments, and the FBI. By March 27th, local police had interviewed around 50 to 60 witnesses, including patrons and employees of Club Dallas, a local bar near the crime scene. By March 30th, police had posted a $500 reward in an effort to gain any new information on the Griffin and Moore case that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible. However, the reward yielded no clues or suspects, instead producing over 100 false leads. So, a little background on the two victims. Richard Griffin was born on August 31st, 1916. He was a 29-year-old war veteran who was discharged from the CBs, I think it's CBs, in November of 1945. He was a carpenter and painter and handled his own contracting. He was living with his mother, Miss R.H. Griffin, at 155 Robinson Courts, which was built for servicemen returning from World War II and has since been demolished. Griffin attended school in Linden, Texas, and Union Chapel, Cass County. He was last seen alive around 10 p.m. on Saturday, March 23rd, in a West 7th Street cafe with his sister, Eleanor, and her boyfriend, J.A. Proctor. Richard was also seen earlier at another West 7th Street cafe by friends at around 2 p.m. Polly Moore was born November 10, 1928 graduated from high school in 1945 in Atlanta, Texas at the age of 16. She had worked for the Red River Arsenal, now the Red River Army Depot Arsenal, as a checker since July of that year. The 17-year-old was living with her cousin, Miss 
Ardella Campbell in a boarding house at 1215 Magnolia Street, which was demolished during the widening of the State Line Avenue. She had been dating Griffin for six weeks at the time of her death. Friends described her as being homey, and she did not go out with boys much. She was last seen with Griffin on Saturday at 2 p.m. at the West 7th Street Cafe, and later on 10 p.m. at another cafe on West 7th Street, having dinner with Griffin, Griffin's sister Eleanor, and Eleanor's boyfriend. A picture of her in her former home in Douglasville, Texas, with her arm wrapped around a black and white dog was found in her purse, which sat beside her on the seat. It was printed in the next morning's news paper. She was also wearing her class ring with the inscription PAM 45, which helped the police identify the body. The third attack happened on the evening of Saturday, April 13th. Betty Jo Booker, age 15, was playing her alto saxophone in her regular weekly gig with her band, the Rhythmiers, Rhythmiers, at the VFW Club at West Fork and Oak Street around 1.30 a.m., Sunday morning, April 14th, her friend Paul Martin, age 17, arrived to pick her up from the performance. This was the last time the pair was seen alive. Martin's body was found at around 6.30 a.m. that morning by Mr. and Mrs. G.H. Weaver and their son, lying on his left side by the northern edge of the North Park Road. Blood was found further down on this other side of the road by a fence. He had been shot four times, once through the nose, again through the left fourth rib from behind, a third from the right hand, and finally through the back of the neck. Booker's body was not found until approximately 11.30 a.m., almost two miles away from Martin's body, behind a tree. She was found by members of the Boyd family, along with their friend Ted Shopee, who had joined the search party. Her body was lying on its back, fully clothed, with the right hand in the pocket, of the buttoned overcoat. Booker had been shot twice, once through the chest and once through the face. The weapon used was the same as the first double murder, a 32 automatic Colt pistol. Martin's 1946 Ford Club Coupe was found about three miles away from Booker's body and 1.55 miles away from his body. It was parked outside Spring Lake Park with the keys still in it. The authorities were not sure who was shot first. Sheriff Presley and Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Gonzalez said that they both had put up a terrific struggle. Martin's friend, Tom Albritton said he did not believe an argument had happened between the victims and that Martin had not had any enemies. Law enforcement was unable to locate Booker's saxophone at the crime scene. The saxophone was eventually discovered around six months later on October 24th, still in its black imitation leather case in underbrush near where Booker's body had been found. A reward fund exceeding $1,700 was recruited for information leading to the person or persons responsible for the Griffin Moore and Martin Booker murders. Rumors circulated through the area with one rumor suggesting a local minister who turned in his own son as a suspect in the Martin Booker murders. On April 18th, Captain Gonzalez issued a statement to the public during a press conference verifying that the murderer had not been caught and that the rumors circulating among the public and in the newspapers were, quote, a hindrance to the investigation and harmful to innocent persons, end quote. Now, a little bit on those two victims. Born in Smackover, Arkansas. <laughs> what a town name, Smackover? Born in Smackover, Arkansas on May 8th, 1929, Paul Martin was a 16-year-old high school junior at the time of his death. He had worked in his family's ice plant in Kilgore when he was younger. His brother, R.S. Martin Jr., described him as a quiet kid. He was a member of Beach Street Baptist Church, the same church as Betty Jo Booker. He 
completed the ninth grade in Arkansas Junior High, and then attended the Gulf Coast Military Academy in Gulfport, Mississippi in 1945 before going to school at Kilgore. He and Booker had been friends since attending Fairview Kindergarten together before she moved to the Texas side in 1944. On Friday, April 12th, Martin drove to Texarkana from Kilgore. That night, he stayed with a friend, Tom Albritton, at Martin's Texarkana residence. The next day, he hung out with Booker at her house during the afternoon. He then picked her up from her regular Saturday night gig at the VFW Club on West 4th and Oak Street on Sunday morning around 2 a.m. He was buried at his church, Beach Street Baptist, on April 16th at 10 a.m. during heavy rainfall. His mother stated that she had objected to his trip to Texarkana, not due to danger in the town, but because she feared he might wreck his car while driving alone. Betty Booker was born on June 5, 1930. She was a 15-year-old junior at Texas High School at the time of her death. She was raised in the church and, like her friend Paul Martin, was a member of Beach Street Baptist Church. She was also a member of the Delta Beta Sigma sorority. She was one of four officers in her high school band and played the Bundy E-flat alto saxophone, second in Jerry Atkins' orchestra, the Rhythmiers, who played at proms and other events. In 1937, several years after the death of her father, her mother Bessie married her stepfather, Carl Brown, an employee of the Gifford Hill Company. Betty was very popular, had many friends, and was well-liked in school. She had many boyfriends, but none that were serious. She loved music and swimming, and liked dancing and programs and recitals. She won many awards, scholastics, literary, and musical, as well as the citywide title of Little Miss Texarkana in 1934, representing the Presbyterian Bookstore. She was a near straight-A student who was planning to become a medical technician. After her death, the Rhythmiers never played again. The night before her attack, she played at her regular Saturday night gig at the VFW building on West 4th and Oak Street. She was then picked up by her friend Paul Martin and was headed to a slumber party. She was killed early Sunday morning and her body was removed by an East Funeral Home ambulance. Several classmates and her band leader attended her funeral two days later at Beach Street Baptist Church. It was held on April 16th at 2 p.m., four hours after Martin's, also during heavy rainfall. Texas High School dismissed its students at noon that day so they could all be at her funeral. Hundreds of young people attended the separate funerals. Betty's mother could not control her grief as she watched the long line of teenagers file by Betty's casket. Atkins was one of the pallbearers. She was then buried in Woodlawn Cemetery. Okay, we've covered a lot. Stick with me for a little longer. We're now going to talk about the final attacks. The final attacks occurred on Friday, May 3rd, sometime before 9 p.m. Virgil Starks, age 37, a farmer and welder, was in his modest ranch-style house on a 500-acre farm off Highway 67 East, almost 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. He turned on his favorite weekly radio show, and his wife Katie, age 36, gave him a heating pad for his sore back. He sat in his armchair in the sitting room, which was just off of the kitchen and the bedroom. While Katie was in her bedroom lying on the bed in her nightgown, she heard something from the backyard and asked Virgil to turn down the radio. Seconds later, while Virgil was reading the May 3rd edition of the Texarkana Gazette, two shots were fired into the back of his head from a closed double window three feet away. Katie did not hear the gunshots. Instead, she heard what sounded like the breaking glass. She thought Virgil had dropped something and went to see what happened. As she entered the doorway to the living room, she saw Virgil standing up and then suddenly slumped back into his chair. She saw blood. 
then ran to him and lifted up his head. When she realized he was dead, she ran to the phone to call the police. She rang the wall crank phone two times before being shot twice in the face from the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear. The other went in just below her lip, breaking her jaw and splintering out several teeth before lodging under her tongue. She dropped to her knees, but soon managed to get back to her feet. She ran to get a pistol from the living room, but was blinded by her own blood. She heard the killer tearing loose through the rustic screen wire and the back porch. She thought she was going to be killed, so she stumbled towards the bedroom near the front of the house to leave a note. Meanwhile, the killer ran to the back of the house and made his way to the steps and into the side screened porch through the back screen door. She heard the killer coming through the kitchen window, so she turned around and ran through the dining room, through the bedroom, down the hallway, through another bedroom, and then into the living room and out the front door, leaving behind a virtual river of blood and teeth throughout the house and across the street. Barefoot, she's still in her blood-soaked nightgown. She ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. Because no one was home, she ran 50 yards more to A.V. Prater's house. Prater's? Prater's house. Prater answered her call for help. She gasped, Virgil's dead, and then collapsed. Prater shot a rifle in the air to summon another neighbor. Elmer Taylor, who Prater sent to collect his car, Taylor complied and, along with the Prater family, took Katie Starks to Michael Meager Hospital, now known as Miller County Health Unit. Ms. Starks gave Taylor one of her teeth with a gold filling by way of thanks. She was in a semi-conscious state, slumped forward on the front seat. Although she lost a considerable amount of blood, she showed no signs of going into shock and her heart rate remained normal. She was questioned in the operating room by Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis, who became head of the investigation. The news was printed on the front page of the next morning, Saturday, May 4th, reading, Murder Rock City Again, Farmer Slain, Wife Wounded. Four days later, Sheriff Davis talked to Miss Starks again at the hospital, where she discounted a circulating rumor that Virgil had heard a car outside their home several nights in a row and feared being killed. Now some background on those two. Virgil Starks was born on April 3rd, 1909. He lived not far from his brother, Charlie, and only two miles away from his father, Jack. He married Catherine Starkland on March 2nd, 1932. Known as a progressive farmer, he was also a welder who did work for neighboring farmers. He had no known enemies and was said to be a neighbor of excellent reputation and was respected and trusted by everyone who knew him. He was a member of the First Methodist Church on 6th and Laurel Street for years. He was shot in the back of the head with two bullets and died almost instantly. His funeral, which his recovering wife could not attend, was held the following Monday at his church at 2.30 p.m. More than 500 people attended his funeral, more than 60 of whom were his and his wife's relatives. He was buried in Hillcrest Cemetery, the same cemetery as Paul Martin. Katie Starks was born on September 25, 1909 in Redwater, Texas. Katie was 36 at the time of her attack. She was married to Virgil Starks and lived at the farmhouse for five years. Her sister, Miss Allen, lived directly across the street. Katie and Virgil went to school together growing up because their parents lived on neighboring farms in Red Springs, Texas. A friend had stated that Katie and Virgil were two of the best people he'd ever known. Katie eventually remarried. At 84 years old on Sunday, July 3rd, 1994, she died in a local hospital as Katie Stark Sutton. Her funeral was held at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, July 6th. She was buried next to Virgil and is between both husbands. She was the retired office manager of American Optical and a member of the First United Methodist Church. Okay, now that we covered crimes themselves, let's uh, talk a little bit about the investigation of the crimes. The Miller County Sheriff's Department was notified just minutes after the alarm reached Hope City Police. Arkansas State Police Officer Charlie Boyd and Max Tackett 
got the call on their radio and were the first officers at the scene. Some of the reports were contradictory. One of the officers said they found Stark still slumped in the blood-soaked chair and that the chair had caught fire from an electric heating pad. Smoke was filling the room and was coming up all around the man between his legs. Yet Sheriff Davis said that when officers arrived at the scene, they found the chair on fire, but Stark's body was not burned because it had fallen on the floor. Immediately after reports of the slaying spread, blockades were set up several miles northeast and southwest in Highway 67 East. Sheriff Davis called in officers from the entire area to help in the investigation, including two agents from the FBI, Captain Gonzalez and other Texas Rangers, Sheriff Presley and his deputies, Sheriff Jim Sanderson from Little River County, Arkansas State Police, local police, and many others. In the house, investigators found a trail of blood with scattered teeth. On the dining room table were Kitty Stark supplies for making a dress. Gonzalez, after seeing the virtual river of blood, stated, It is beyond me why she did not bleed to death. There were only two bullet holes in the window, leading Sheriff Davis to believe an automatic rifle was used. Investigators declared that after this killer shot Virgil, he waited patiently outside the window to shoot his wife. Three clues were found at this scene. The first was the caliber of bullets. The second was a flashlight found in the hedge underneath the window that Stark was shot from. The last were bloody prints around the house, shoe prints on the kitchen floor, and smudged fingerprints in other places. Sheriff Davis stated that although the murder could not be directly linked to the Phantom because the caliber was a 22, it is possible that the killer is one and the same man. Those who had been driving in the area near the time of the slaying, along with several men found in the vicinity, were picked up for questioning. Early on Saturday morning, bloodhounds were brought in by the Arkansas State Police. They found two trails that led to the highway before the scent was lost. By Sunday night, more officers were called in to help in the investigation. Officers had detained at least 12 suspects, but only kept three for further questioning. 47 officers were working to solve the murders, among them sheriffs of four counties, Captain Gonzalez and his staff of Texas Rangers, and Chief Deputy Tillman Johnson. The flashlight was sent to Washington, D.C. for further inspection by the FBI. The unofficial theory for a motive amongst the majority of officers was that of sex mania, as large amounts of money in the home were not taken, nor was Katie Stark's purse, which was lying on the bed and contained money and jewelry. The title of the front page of the Texarkana Gazette on Sunday, May 5, 1946 read, Sex Maniac Hunted in Murders. On the night of Virgil's death, the reward fund was up to $7,025. The following Tuesday, a mobile radio station was sent from Austin, Texas. Gonzalez stated that the unit, which was one of the best in the country, would be accompanied by a fleet of prowl cars furnished with two-way radio equipment which would allow the officers to converse not only with headquarters but between cars as well. A clerk from the Bowie County Selective Service Board number one stated that even though he contacted officers two weeks beforehand, no investigating officers had checked his files. Another clerk from the Miller County Draft Board stated that no request for examination of her files had been made. Both explained that their reports would reveal information such as thumbprints, rifleman awards, and metal and physical conditions of the restraints. That night, during a radio interview, Gonzalez asked residents to help the investigation by refraining from spreading and repeating rumors. He stated, quote, These only take the officers from the main route of the investigation. It is so important that we capture this man that we cannot afford to overlook any leads, no matter how frantic it may seem, end quote. The next day, the mobile radio transmitting station arrived in Texarkana late in the afternoon, along with 10 police cars and 12 state police officers. Captain Gonzalez placed it into operation immediately. 
a correspondent from the international news service made reservations to come to the city and cover the story. Bob Carpenter from the Mutual Broadcasting Service in New York City arrived and was arranging a coast-to-coast broadcast directly from the KCMC studios on 315 national stations. John Holman, chairman of the Reward Fund, asked people to send their donations in check form made out to either the Texarkana National Bank or the State National Bank. He said that the reward monies would be kept in deposit slips, which could make it easier to return the money back to the donors if needed. On Thursday morning, May 9th, Sheriff Davis was notified that the flashlight found at the Starks murder scene contained no fingerprints. On Wednesday, May 29th, a colored picture on the front page of the Texarkana Gazette showed the flashlight. It was the Texarkana Gazette's first spot-colored photograph. In the May 11th edition of the Texarkana Gazette, Sheriff Presley and Chief of Police Jack N. Runnels asked for any information on missing persons on the night of the murders. Quote, somebody in Texarkana or in the Bowie or Miller counties know that somebody else was out of pocket on the nights of February 22nd to 23rd, March 23rd to 24th, April 13th to 14th, and May 3rd, and Sheriff W.H. Presley and Chief of Police Jack Runnels want persons having such knowledge to report to them immediately, end quote. The fact that he said out of pocket... <laughs> Okay. In a joint statement, the officers declared, we want every man and woman in these two counties to recall the dates of these murders and also to recall whether or not any persons close to them was missing or out of pocket (laughs) during those nights. Persons who have such information and have been withholding it when they know they should report it are leaving themselves open to possible charges of complicity in the event the slayer is captured. Make no mistake, about the fact that the Slayer will be captured because we will not give up on this hunt until he has been captured or killed. All information received will be treated confidentially. We urge you to come in and tell what you know. Don't be hesitant or fear that you are causing an innocent man embarrassment and trouble in as much all investigation will be confidential. This is no time to take any chance on information which might lead us to the Slayer. This maniac must be captured. We believed that we are justified in going to any ends to halt this chain of murder. Bear in mind, this killer may strike at anyone. He may strike at persons close to him. For that reason, we believe any person with information that may lead us to the murderer should act in the interest of self-preservation. On Saturday, May 11th, a teletype machine arrived from Austin, Texas in the afternoon and was installed in the Bowie County Sheriff's Office. It was an operation later that night. Gonzalez explained that the machine would aid in the investigation by connecting them with other law enforcement offices in Texas. Sheriffs Presley and Davis suggested raising a reward fund of $2,500 for information and would help catch the killer of Virgil Starks. They mentioned that if the slayer of Mr. Starks was the same person responsible for the murders, then the Starks reward would be combined with the other rewards, equating to the sum of $10,000. Over a month later, on Monday, June 10th, Virgil's father, Jack Starks, added a $500 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of his son's killer. By November 1948, authorities no longer considered the Starks murder connected to the other double murders. The murder sent the town of Texarkana into a state of panic throughout the summer. At dusk, city inhabitants heavily armed themselves and locked themselves indoors while police patrolled streets and neighborhoods. Although many businesses lost customers at night, stores sold out of guns, ammunition, locks, and many other protective devices. Several rumors began to spread, including that the killer was caught or that a third and even fourth double homicide had been committed. 
Most of the town hid in fear inside their houses or hotels, sometimes even leaving town. Some youth took matters into their own hands by trying to bait the phantom so they could kill him. The disappearance of Virginia Carpenter, a cold case in Texarkana in 1948, has been speculated as the work of the phantom. After three months without phantom attacks, the Texas Rangers slowly and quietly left town to keep the phantom from believing he was safe to strike again. The murders were reported nationally and internationally by several publications. The unknown killer did not acquire a nickname until after the deaths of Booker and Martin. In the April 16th edition of the Texarkana Daily News, a heading read, Phantom Killer Eludes Officers as investigation of slangs pressed. The front page story was continued on page two with the headline, Phantom Slayer Eludes Police. The Texarkana continued a small title on April 17th, which read, Phantom Slayer Still at Large as a Probe Continues. J.Q. Mahaffey, executive editor of the Texarkana Gazette in 1946, said that Calvin Sutton, the managing editor of the Gazette, had an acute sense for the dramatic in the news, which impelled him to ask if they could start referring to the unknown murderer as the Phantom. Mahaffey replied, why not? If the son of a bitch continues to elude capture, he certainly can be called a Phantom. Texas Ranger Captain Gonzalez stated that he and his officers were dealing with a shrewd criminal who had left no stone unturned to conceal his identity and activities, and that the murderer's efforts were both clever and baffling. He also stated that the man they were hunting was a cunning individual who would go to all lengths to avoid apprehension. At the murder scene of Virgil Starks, Sheriff Presley said, the killer is the luckiest person I've ever known. No one sees him, hears him in time, or can identify him in any way. Officers have said that the killer is apparently a maniac who is an expert with a gun. Victim and survivor Jimmy Hollis said, I know he's crazy. The crazy things he said made me feel his mind was warped. The Texarkana Gazette stated, If one of the same man is responsible for the five murders that have been committed in this vicinity since March 24th, the Gazette feels that the public should know the type of man with which the community is dealing. With that thought in mind, the newspaper asked Dr. LaPala for the following interview. The interview was sought and was given only in the interest of the public, and the intent is not to alarm anyone, but to give everyone the benefit of what is considered an expert opinion as to the mental behavior of the man saw in these crimes. Dr. Anthony LaPala, a psychologist at the Federal Correctional Institution of Texarkana, believed the killer was planning to continue to make unexpected attacks such as that of Virgil Starks on the outskirts of town. He also believed the same person committed all five murders and that the killer was somewhere between his mid-30s and 50s, apparently motivated by a strong sex drive and sadism. LaPala stated, that a person who would commit such crimes was intelligent, clever, shrewd, and often not apprehended. According to Lapella's theories, the killer knew at all times what was being done in the investigation and knew that vacant roads were being patrolled, which is why he chose the house on farmland. He said that in many cases similar to this, the killer was never apprehended, and in some instances, he will divert attention to other distant communities where it is believed the crimes are committed by a different individual, or else he will overcome the desire to kill and assault people. Lapella said that the murderer is probably not a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and that he could be leading a normal life, appearing to be a good citizen. He also said that the killer probably is not a veteran. He stated that the murderer was not necessarily a resident of the area despite his knowledge of it. All the attacks shown evidence of deep planning. Lapella further stated that the strengthening of the police force would not scare the killer away, but that he would willingly leave due to difficulty of committing a crime. This man is extremely dangerous. 
He works alone and no one knows what he's doing because he tells no one, LaPella said, adding that the killer may have reasoned that the only way to remain unidentified is to kill all persons at the scene. LaPella did not believe that the killer was a black man either. Throughout the investigation of the phantom killer case, almost 400 suspects were arrested. In the Hollis LaRae case, no suspects were apprehended. In the Griffin and Moore case, over 200 persons were questioned and about the same number of false tips and leads were checked. Three suspects were taken into custody for bloody clothing, two of whom were released after officers researched satisfying explanations. The remaining suspect was held in Vernon, Texas for further investigation but was later cleared of suspicion. In the Martin and Booker case, a taxi driver quickly became a major suspect because his cab was seen in the vicinity of the crime scene that morning, but the driver was soon washed out as investigations continued. Friends, acquaintances, and several suspects were questioned in three rooms in the Bowie County building by officers who worked in 24-hour relays. Suspects were brought in from within a radius of 100 miles, both male and female, and white and black. Officers received a lead from Jerry Atkins, Booker's band leader, who stated that Betty had carried a saxophone with her. Because no saxophone was found, officers hoped that it would lead them to a suspect. On Saturday, April 27th, a man was arrested in Corpus Christi, Texas for trying to sell a saxophone to a music store. The previous Thursday, the 30-year-old man walked into a music store without an instrument and asked the salesperson if the store wanted to buy a Bundy Alto saxophone. The girl told him she would have to speak to her manager. The man replied, what do you have to talk to him for? You work here, don't you? The girl claimed that the man seemed nervous. Once the manager was summoned, the man fled. The store contacted the police. The man was arrested two days later at a waterfront hotel after purchasing a 45 caliber revolver from a pawn shop. On Tuesday, April 30th, the sales girl identified him as the same man who was trying to sell a saxophone. Although no saxophone was found in his possession, the police found a bag of bloody clothes in the hotel room. The man claimed that the blood was from a cut that he had received on his forehead in a bar fight. After several days of grilling, Captain Gonzalez stated, Everything the man is telling us is being checked and double-checked, and everything he has told us thus far has been found to be true. He has answered all of our questions without hesitancy, and we are making every effort to find out if he is telling us the truth or covering up information. We are convinced that thus far the man has told the truth, and if all the stories are found to be true beyond the shadow of a doubt, we can no longer hold him as a suspect. Gonzalez also stated, our duty is not only to apprehend violators of the law, but also to protect innocent persons. When we make an arrest in the case and charges are filed, there must be no mistake. We must get the right man or no man at all. On Friday, May 3rd, the Gazette reported Gonzalez's announcement that this man has been completely eliminated. He has been checked and double-checked, and he couldn't have had anything to do with the murder case here. In the Starks case, several people were found in the vicinity of the crime scene, were stopped and questioned. Twelve were detained, but nine were soon released. The remaining three were kept for further questioning, but eventually all detainees were released. We have covered a shit ton of information. This is... The longest one yet we're ending we're ending halloween on a bang so now that we have all the info let's talk about the main suspect i guess you could say all right are you ready we're almost done i promise we're in the the final stretch max tackett a 33 year old rookie arkansas state police officer realized that a car had been stolen on the night of one of the murders and that a previously stolen car had been found abandoned 
On Friday, June 28, 1946, Tackett found a car in a parking lot that had been reported stolen. He staked out the car until someone came back to it, then arrested a 20-year-old Peggy Sweeney. She said that she had just gotten married in Shreveport, but that her husband was currently in Atlanta, Texas, trying to sell another stolen car. Homer Carter, the chief of police in Atlanta, told Tackett that a man had tried selling a stolen car to one of the citizens. Tackett asked the citizen if he would recognize the suspect, but the man said that he would not. Tackett noticed that the citizen had a distinct appearance, which included a cowboy hat and boots, and told the citizen, you wouldn't recognize him, but he would recognize you. Tackett then asked the citizen if he would be willing to walk with him into several public places, having had the idea that the suspect would not want to see the citizen and would try to avoid him. On a Saturday in July, Tackett walked into the Arkansas Motor Coach bus station on Front Street near Union Station with the citizen and noticed a man run out of the back of the building. Tackett chased after him and caught him on the fire escape. The man was Ewell Sweeney? Ewell? Ewell? I'm going to say Ewell. Sweeney. Soon after arrest, he reportedly made that might have been incriminating statements about being a murderer, such as a fear of being sentenced to the electric chair. When police questioned Sweeney's wife Peggy, she confessed in great deal that he was the phantom killer and that he had killed Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin. Her story changed in some details across several confessions and conversations, and police believe she was withholding some facts due to fear of Sweeney or fear of incriminating herself. Police were able to independently verify some details of Peggy's confession, such as location of victims' possessions in a location she said Ewell had discarded it. A shirt with a laundry mark, perhaps linked in the Starks case, was found in Sweeney's possession, but the link was not certain. Peggy's confession was the most critical part of the case. By law, in 1946, Peggy could not be forced to testify against her husband, and because she was considered an unreliable witness, Yule was not arrested for the murder. Instead, with only circumstantial evidence, Sweeney was sent to prison as a habitual offender for car theft. Presley reported in his 2014 book that several investigators in the Sweeney case later said that the habitual offender sentence was effectively a plea bargain, even though the case files indicated no such agreement was reached formally. Sweeney was concerned about being sentenced to death for the murders, so agreed to no context and habitual offender charge, and in fact tried to plead guilty even though habitual offender cases required a jury trial. Some of the circumstantial evidence include the car Peggy Sweeney was arrested for stealing was the one reported missing on the night of the Griffin Moore murders. When Tackett caught Yule Sweeney in the fire escape, Sweeney said, please don't shoot me. Tackett replied, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars, to which Sweeney then said, mister, don't play games with me. You want me for more than stealing cars. Similarly, when Yule was in the police car, he asked Chief Deputy Johnson, Mr. Johnson, what do you think they'll do to me for this? Will they give me the chair? Johnson replied with, you won't get much, maybe five or ten years. They don't give the electric chair for stealing cars. Sweeney then said, Mr. Johnson, you got me for more than stealing cars. When a lawyer told Peggy that her husband was being held for murder, she exclaimed, how did they find out? Peggy took officers near the spot where Paul Martin's car was found. She said she had walked into the woods there. The officer found a woman's heel print in that area. Peggy's family and Yule's brother-in-law believed Yule was the phantom. Police found a khaki work shirt in the suspect's room with a laundry mark of the word stark which was read under a black light in the front pocket of the work shirt slag was found which matched samples found in virgil stark's welding shop yule sweeney previously owned a 32 caliber colt automatic 
but had sold it in a craps game. While being accused of murder, Sweeney remained silent instead of pleading his innocence. Peggy Sweeney confessed to her husband's actions, revealing very detailed information, including some information officers already knew and some did not. Some complications include Yule's fingerprints did not match any of the Latin prints at the Booker Martin crime scene. Peggy Sweeney recanted her confession. The Texas Rangers and Sheriff Presley were not convinced that Sweeney was the Phantom. Sweeney denied being the Phantom and never made a confession. Officers included Sheriff Presley and Davis, Chief of Police Reynolds, and both state police departments worked day and night for six months trying to validate Peggy Sweeney's story and her and her husband's whereabouts. They deducted that Peggy was not telling the truth and that on the night of the murder of Booker and Martin, the couple was sleeping in their car under a bridge near San Antonio. Unknown to be either a prank or a true confession, an anonymous woman contacted family members of two of the victims, one in 1999 and another in 2000, apologizing for what her father had done. Yule Sweeney was not known to ever have a daughter. Now, even though the prime suspect in the case was Yule Sweeney, there were several other suspects as well, including a man named Henry, a German prisoner of war, a man from Atoka County, a man who was hypnotized and a man by the name of Ralph B. Bauman. Each of them have very elaborate stories to confessing to the crimes and why they were suspects and eventually ruled out. However, for the sake of time here, because we are already very long, I will not be going over each one of those. Um, I want to say sorry, but I also want to say you're welcome because that would have taken a lot longer. Okay, okay. In just 2020, the FBI published so many archived documents from the investigation that are available to the public to look at. I will link everything I can find, including that, in the description. If you're interested, you can go look at it. Um, It includes more than 1,100 pages of reports, news clippings, correspondence among the law enforcement, photographs of evidence, fingerprints and handprints, maps and diagrams, leads and suspects. Hopefully, one day the case will be solved and the Phantom will have a name. That's finally, Jesus Christ, finally, the end of the Phantom Killer case. I cannot believe that the case that's not solved, like literally we don't know who it is, had that much, that much information. So I guess question, question of the day to end it off. Do you think you all did it? I don't know what to think, honestly. Because, I don't know, like, was he just, like, pretending to be the killer when he was saying that stuff, when he was getting chased and then got arrested? Like, who would say, you got me more on just stealing cars? Why would you say that? Why would you say that? Let me know what you think. Who do you think did it? Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we are going to be taking a mental, a mental break. We're not going to be doing a true crime case. Um, I don't know if I should say sorry or you're welcome honestly, because I love true crime cases just as much as the next person, but sometimes we need a break for, for, for ourselves, for our mental health, for our well-being, so we don't have nightmares every night. Thank you so much for listening. Again, like I always say, you can suggest topics, people, whatever you want. You can just DM me on either the Over the Topics Instagram page or my personal Instagram page. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye.